Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast from just south of nowhere in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm joined by Light Reading Senior Editor covering SD-WAN and making sure our conferences have lots of smart people saying smart things from Raleigh, North Carolina. Please welcome Kelsey Zeiser. Hello. How are things? It's really hot here in North Carolina, <laughs> just to is, state the obvious. <laughs> it is going to continue to be so, and uh, that's okay. If I go quiet, I'm just in a puddle on the floor. You've just melted into, <laughs> yes. into a puddle? Yes. Well, that's why we have other people on the podcast, too. <laughs> um, in the hot seat today, uh, she's the Director of Communications for US Ignite. She's a returning light reading podcast guest and a former editor of this fine publication and a frequent pizza challenge participant. More on that later. Please welcome Mari Silby. Hello. Good to be here. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm calling, calling in from the swamps of D.C., which <laughs> is usually the, the one of the hotter places, but Fort Worth and, and Raleigh, North Carolina may have me beat. Yeah, we are we are uh, we're leading the heat map right now, but uh, but yeah, DC can get way up there for sure, and you guys have humidity too. Ugh. Yeah, definitely. They call it the swamp for a number of reasons. It, it very much resembles a swamp. Okay, um, this is episode twenty-eight, uh, and if we're talking tomorrow, it means we are talking about smart cities, uh, how we get there, what we need to think about along the way, and all of that stuff. Um, I did some research, and apparently, according to Ovum, uh, smart cities will continue to see growth in the number of IoT-related projects and contracts uh, this year. But uh, making money is still something that's uh, a bit difficult because of funding politics, um, you know, fragmentation, and sometimes uh, getting the data and managing the data is proving to be quite difficult. So today we're going to talk about how cities are uh, learning more about handling data, uh, why it's tough to go from proofs of concept to real life deployments. And, and um, if a city has more than, you know, two or three telcos that are all trying to hang small cells on light poles and um, put their own infrastructure in place, what kind of challenges um, that brings up. So for our first question, um, and in, in our first segment, let's talk about the data dilemma. Um, Mari, what have uh, city leaders that U.S. Ignite and has been talking to, um, what have they been learning about uh, bringing in more data from the sensors and the IoT and the smart cities projects that, uh, that have been out uh, so far? Sure. So I, I thought I would start with the positive and I, you know, I hear anecdotal stories and I hear uh, stories of case studies and deployments at various different meetings and events and the like. And there are certainly a number of challenges, but there's some very, very interesting use cases for how cities are using data now and using it to solve problems. So mm -hmm. one one that I heard recently from the former chief digital officer, sorry, the former chief data officer for Chicago. So the city apparently had a problem with restaurants failing health inspections. And so they decided, would is there a better way that a better system they could put in place to recognize this, the locations that were likely to have uh, likely to fail their health inspections and be able to address those locations faster. And so they started collecting data from sources like food inspection records from 311 calls, which 311 calls and 311 systems have been 
certainly growing and evolving in the in recent years, and, and also from non emergency yeah, police or non emergency um, information services, oh, okay. um, so uh, civic services, um, and then also from from weather reports because gosh, ongoing high temperatures are correlated with uh, right. health food violations. Food uh, spoilage. In oh, yeah, food spoilage. That makes sense. So they used they used all this data, um, and there may have been more, but all of it's available on their open data portal. They used it to generate a list of restaurants uh, to inspect. Um, and they found that when they used that to generate their list to inspect, rather just their rather than their their human folks who say, "Hey, these are the places where we have found violations in the past," mm-hmm. they were able to speed up finding critical violations by about eight days in a sixty day period. So basically, it was it, it's a modest improvement. But they were able to use uh, data from multiple sources and data analytics to be able to say, to get to to restaurant locations with health violations faster than they would have previously, and therefore be able to address the the safety issues with food spoilage yeah. and, and other health concerns. So I thought that was a completely out of the blue um, use case scenario that I thought was interesting. And you can just imagine as there are more sensors uh, in kitchens and things are mandated uh, in different locations that that will, there will be opportunities to improve that. Yeah. I saw now there's like a USB fork that you can get. <laughs> I don't know exactly what yeah. it what it does. Like the connected- charges your phone while you're eating. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole there's a whole niche there. There's a whole connected kitchen subset that I just know nothing about. Well, if it if it trims down the amount of time that it takes to find a health code violation and, p- and perhaps remedy that violation, and you say like eight days out of sixty maybe isn't. Uh, you know, it isn't a massive statistical jump, but think about it. That's eight days that somebody wasn't possibly eating, you know, uh, bad food and getting yeah. sick. So that's, and that's possibly. helps tourism and all kinds of stuff, I guess. Fewer emergency room visits. I don't know. Think of the, the healthcare costs. Yeah. They, um, they don't have to ask their USB for it, uh, whether it's right. safe to eat. <laughs> right. That's coming. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that's coming. <laughs> the, um, I heard another, um, Another interesting one from the city of Baton Rouge, which has has a blight issue. And one of the problems they've had is tires piled up, folks discarding tiles because they don't want tires because they don't want to deal with the fees for uh, environment, responsible environmental um, oh, removal wow. of the tires. Oh. Yeah. And these tires, you know, they they create health issues because they collect water when they're left by the side of the road or mm-hmm. in a dump area. So it's a real safety hazard. And the city purchased a tire shredder because they wanted to be able to to deal with all of these leftover tires. But the other thing they're looking at doing is using live traffic video monitoring and Ooh. analysis, uh, machine learning or AI, to use video footage from cameras around town and possibly identify the vehicles that are dumping those tires in the first place in different neighborhoods. Um, and I have to say that is just, that's a use case that never occurred to me from video traffic cams. Um, so yeah. kind of like hey, that show cheaters, but with tires, <laughs> but, but for, with yeah, cars. for cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> they have the ugly confrontation in the tire store. <laughs> Sorry. I don't think there's as much of an issue with, you know, facial recognition, uh, for tires <laughs> and cars as opposed to people. So. Maybe the privacy issues are not quite as dire. Yeah. 
Now I know what you said, what you, what you meant when you said it was going to be a good year. Oh, oh. <laughs> sorry. Wow. All right, everyone go home. So <laughs> yeah, that was, that should really be it right there. Sorry. Uh, so Mari, I uh, saw on the, um, yeah. the US Ignite website, uh, an article about the city of Cary, which sparked my interest because, or town of Cary, I think it is. I should know better since it's like adjacent to Raleigh. Next door. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Geography. Whew. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, it was talking about the need to not, um, silo data and to share data. Um, so I wanted to hear more from you about that. If cities, need help with big data, um, with their analytics, sharing this data as well, do they always need to go to the private sector? Or like what, um, what avenues are there available? Sure. Well, I thought the, uh, the CIO from Cary, so she spoke at an event we had recently for our US Ignite Forum program. And she, her name is Nicole Raimondo. She's, she's a, she's a rock star. And she made a great comment where she said that essentially who doesn't love a data dashboard, but she said it sarcastically (laughs) because as she, as she argued, data dashboards are just a new way of siloing Mm -hmm. data. So if you think about walled Mm -hmm. garden applications, um, I always think about it uh, in terms of the fights that used to go on with cable video and also with, um, and set tops and also with mobile platforms, things that get siloed in apps as opposed to on the open web. Dashboards are kind of more of the same. Um, So if, if some of the examples of data use um, were the positive side of this discussion, and there are other, I gave some pretty out there examples. There are other more, totally more mundane ones, including, you know, traffic sensors and recognizing when there's been a water main break and that kind of thing. But on the negative side, yeah, there's this um, being able to open data up, normalize it across different types of data sets, being able to analyze it. There's privacy and and ethics issues. Um, There's transparency issues. Um, Somebody else said at, at this recent event that transparency is a great way to get to get cities to talk about open data initially until somebody gets in trouble for some data that's been made transparent. And then it's it's suddenly, suddenly somebody's job is on the line and you're not so excited about transparency. You mean you can't delete a tweet. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You said um, like with, with dashboards and you like into the walled garden analogy, why, why would a dashboard create an issue? Is it just, depending on who has access to it? Well, it depends on what kind of data goes into it and whether you can extract data from the dashboard to use it and compare it and analyze it against other data sets. Yeah, I saw another thing in the article Um, was that, I can't remember who it was, but he was saying that, or maybe it was Raymundo, that they would prefer to just have the raw data versus, um, I guess, having it analyzed in some way. Like they, they just want all of it. Yeah, one of the things I didn't know is that scooters and and shared bikes and all of those things, typically cities, when they get the information about the movement of those vehicles and devices, they get it as an aggregate data stream, um, and they, they're not getting it directly from the devices themselves, which in the future, they oh. might like to have those direct connections to be able to do two-way communication too, like to put out alerts mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. I was wondering um, why they were right now, these, yeah. like abandoned scooters in my neighborhood that <laughs> seem to just be like growing kudzu. And there's one, 
There's one neighbor <laughs> on the corner who I'm pretty sure is like hoarding all the lime scooters. Um, he's got them yeah, all. We have them in all different place. colors. <laughs> we have them in all different oh. colors. So it's like, you know, rainbow explosion across <laughs> the lawns of, of, uh, of so, our neighborhood. <laughs> so if, if um, back on the data thing for one sec, help me understand something. So the, in this, in the first examples that you gave were those two cities, they, they were obviously taking data from multiple sources and, and sort of using it to, um, you know, for, for a specific outcome once they realized uh, that they could solve a problem. Um, were they, were they doing this by way of any particular big data platform or has each city kind of done this, you know, f- figured out their own, uh, how to manage data by themselves? Like I'm trying to figure out if there's, a, if there's like an, um, an industry solution that's yeah. out there, if telcos are involved or or some other company, there are multiple industry solutions out there for for data analysis and data capture. Um, but the other thing that I I think is interesting, and, and you you would not be surprised to know that the the cloud providers um, and then uh, certainly a lot of service providers also have data platforms that they are out there trying to bring to their municipal partners. Um, But the other, I think the other angle that's interesting is where the universities come into play. Um, Because a lot of times the cities themselves don't have the resources to um, either build up a platform or know how to manage the data or have the human resources to do the data analysis. Um, So a lot of, uh, a lot of cities are now starting to partner with universities or labs, test labs in their regions to be able to send their data off and have that have that data analyzed and used for research or sometimes even used, um, sometimes even the university partnership is used as a way to prove uh, privacy and trust to uh, the citizens whose data may or may not be being collected. Um, mm, yeah. I'll give a couple, couple of examples. One is... Um, I mentioned Baton Rouge is doing uh, is doing a certain amount of traffic data. They are also bringing in data from Waze, which offers uh, a lot of free data to municipalities. But again, Baton Rouge doesn't have the capabilities to be able to go through and analyze a lot of that data. So they are partnering with LSU, and LSU they're in the they had an initial MOU, initial memorandum of understanding to have. Mm-hmm. Um, the university start to analyze data for specific use cases, but they're expanding it to see if they've got all of this data from Waze and then also from their own sources, uh, what can they what can they use that data for and what are the insights that are coming out of it? So that I think is an interesting partnership. To allay the citizens' fears of what's being done with the data, having some having a university sort mm-hmm. of a trusted party processing it sort of helps a little bit. Yeah, Charlotte. Um, Charlotte had a home, smart home, home energy, home efficiency program going on in low-income neighborhoods at one point, and they were using the University of North Carolina Charlotte as the keeper of the data that was coming from homes that had uh, smart thermostats and were also, I believe, they were combined with Alexis. Um, and any, in any case, all the data that was being collected for that pilot project was being housed and stored within the university so that nobody could say, oh, the, the, the government or a company is spying on me. Um, no, the, the university somehow, and for better or worse, has a better trust factor, trust ranking than either the government or the private sector. Hmm. 
All right, cool. We'll we'll leave the big data discussion there for now. I'm sure we'll revisit this um, in the near future. But for now, we have to go to break and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Phil Harvey with Kelsey Zeiser, and our guest today is Mari Silby from US Ignite. And what I alluded to in the intro, I we mentioned a thing called the Pizza Challenge. Um, uh, Kelsey, do you want to maybe give us some idea of what the Pizza Challenge sure. is and so what's going on? The Pizza Challenge is circa. February, March of 2018, when Mari and I, it turned out we were on the same flight back from Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, and we arrived in New York, and we were disheveled and confused and hungry and jet-lagged and decided to each get a personal pizza at the airport, Um, and we're like, oh, we're not going to eat the whole thing, but then we did, (laughs) as one does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it was <laughs> right. that being the and challenge then, part, then right? It was born the pizza challenge. Yeah, um, but I have to say, it's it's expanded quite significantly. There's there's a lot of other light reading and light reading alums who have now participated, and they ask us the rules. And honestly, you know, it's it's not so much about who does it the fastest or who gets all the way through. It's really just about eating a lot of pizza, and mm-hmm. it's kind of a it's kind of a win win. I, yeah. I find. <laughs> Yeah, so Alan Alan Bresnik, I guess, is now the chair of the Pizza Challenge chairperson. Yeah, he's he's the unofficial. Well, I guess he's the official commissioner because he he he's, yes, he seems it. to be the most um uh you know enthusiastic. yeah enthusiastic, <laughs> and he's he's a, he's a a natural authority on all things pizza. We should have a we should have a map. We should really we should put pins on a map for every city oh. we've had a pizza challenge. I feel like this is a, yeah. a way to combine pizzas and cities and I you know because we per- needed we needed a way. I've participated in two of them and I think they were both in Denver because we had a run of trade shows in in Denver. Oh, yeah. And um <laughs> I've uh and and yeah, you're right. It's all about showing up, um, doing your personal best to eat as much pizza as you possibly can, and of course hanging out with your, uh, your light reading pals. And, uh, uh, I, anyway, it's a great thing. I hope everyone else adopts a pizza challenge in their companies. <laughs> yeah. Just make sure your waiter cuts your pizza because yeah. that happened to me once where mine was not cut. So it kind of put me behind. Right. In the I think we have challenge. a photo of that. I, I think that would be a great multimedia asset to go with yeah. this. I podcast. think we should add this. I was about to podcast. say, I think as we uh, share this episode, we're going to have to, uh, on social media, we'll have to attach uh, different photos from different cities and that could be <laughs> quite fun. So now the pizza challenge is out of the bag. We can, we can uh, safely say everybody knows what the pizza challenge is. And of course, sharing a pizza with friends <laughs> is nice. Um, but in the smart cities realm, uh, sharing a light pole with telcos is something that's far less appetizing. So uh, back to what's going on in smart cities. Uh, Mari, what could go wrong if every single telco and cable company that has to build out 5G small cells and fiber um, have to do this all on their own to offer new services? Um, what kind of challenges does that create for uh, people who are running cities? 
man, who, first of all, who has the money to do that much duplicate infrastructure? It mm. just, yeah. it might work here and there, but it, it doesn't scale. <laughs> yeah. And for the, for the poor cities who have just had an influx of, you know, permitting requests for, from telcos and, and others who want to use their, their rights of way and their polls, it's definitely become a, a bureaucratic challenge. But the, um, the money piece, you know, and, and you and I have discussed this offline. Right. I don't, I don't know how um, how this goes beyond uh, an extremely small scale. I was talking to folks in Kansas City at one point who were talking about a smart corridor that they deployed. So, you know, smart lights, traffic, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And even though they have so much fiber in the ground there because they were Google's first gigabit city, they actually right. had to deploy – uh, totally new networks to be able to provide connectivity to the poles um, that were along this corridor because they had no existing relationship with Kansas, uh, sorry, with Google to oh, wow. be able to access the private fiber infrastructure that was there. Um, and you got to figure this is a problem that's going to come up again and again. It seems weird that sh- that no one has thought through sharing infrastructure from the beginning, especially when you're, you know. W- when the whole idea of some of these um, f- more aggressive 5G millimeter wave, you know, requiring projects um, like autonomous vehicles inside of, you know, city uh, city limits and stuff like that, that's going to require small cells in relatively close proximity to the road itself. That's going to mean people are going to use street lamps and, you know, things that are close by the road. I can't believe they didn't think this through. Like, well, like it's weird. We know how much we know how much telcos like to share, right? This is uh, oh yeah, right, yeah. All of the one touch make ready, you know. This is this is why there have been so many heated debates in the the FCC mm-hmm. because when new new folks were trying to get into cities with uh, existing incumbents and trying to get access to poles to attach fiber. Um, there were tremendous delays that were put in place, not just by city bureaucracy and paperwork getting, you know, filed incorrectly, but also from, you know, the incumbents who sort of said, yeah, don't come touch this pole. It's got my stuff on it. And right. um, we're going to we're going to put some timeline delays in that process. Um, and that's, you know, that was when you had one incumbent. Uh, sorry, one new entrant, Google, trying to go into cities with incumbents. And now all of a sudden you've got. How many, you know, four major wireless carriers plus whoever else wanting to right. put out small cell infrastructure? Well, now they've got a, you know, a flat out race. So, so now that everyone has launched some sort of mobile 5G service in the U.S., you know, to varying degrees, the, it seems like the the clock is is ticking once again on how quickly someone can turn on, um, you know, millimeter wave 5G service in a um, within the city limits. And to do that, they've got to get access to a lot of city infrastructure and you know like like we keep seeing they're probably not going to share that access they're probably not going to allow their competitors they're probably going to try and make it harder for their competitors is there any um is there any solution on the horizon that you've seen from from the US Ignite side in um in in getting telcos and uh cities to um work in a little bit of a different way so that the access to infrastructure isn't slowed down, but also so that um, there isn't this sort of once the first telco gets in, then it's just going to be a monopoly on service. Yeah. I I don't have a lot of data on how well 
co-location and, and sharing might be taking place at this point. What I do know is that some cities are now implementing GIS reservation systems. So essentially having a reservation system online that has GIS plotted uh, poles of different sorts, anything that the city owns, and then using those to uh, using that data to create a reservation system that companies can come in, whether it's the small cell infrastructure providers that sell to the carriers, whether it's the carriers themselves, um, a, a way for them to come in and um, put in to reserve space on a particular poll. Um, just as an example, San Jose started a reservation system process, and apparently, uh, according to one of their one of their um, experts there, they were able to get it down to ninety days. Let's see, wait, what was it? They were able to. Um, I know what it was. They were able to get ninety permits for one carrier. Uh, process in a period of three months last fall. And that was a tremendous jump from where they had been. And it's just getting much, much faster now. So that's certainly speeding up the process of getting telcos access to some of these light poles and, and utility poles. But there, the issue around uh, around sharing, I, I don't have I don't have a whole lot of data. There was Philadelphia back when the you remember when the Pope came to visit and we yeah. had uh, a tremendous, um, <laughs> tremendous, uh, what, what's the word to put it? Chaotic shuffling, yeah. uh, trying to get up enough wireless services so that right. everybody yeah. who would, you know, visit these cities that the Pope visited would still they had be like able to. an emergency build out, I think, Verizon yeah. did and some others. Yeah. You know, because who doesn't want to text a picture of the Pope to your to your best friend? Hey, you know, it's a Pope. Hey. Um, in Philadelphia. So he was like, you know, yeah. more aggressive, angry Pope. Right. <laughs> So in Kidding. Philadelphia, actually, they they this is one of the first times they put polls out to bid um, to the carriers that were coming in to shore up their networks. Um, and what one of their folks said uh, at one point is that they had, um, gosh, what was it? I like 120 wood poles, a certain number of fiberglass, and then a 6,000 steel poles. Um, and they had a hunt out of all of these polls, they had 150 conflicts where two companies wanted the same poll hmm. and where those conflicts existed, they wanted to ask, they then asked if they were willing to co-locate and they were able to apparently hash out everything except 36 polls, which those were divvied out by lottery and by draft. Uh -huh. So I guess there were some areas where they were willing to co-locate. Again, yeah. that was a, a temporary network. I don't know if that still exists. Um, but I figure there's cities are and and telcos are going to have to figure out some of these solutions going forward because without co-location, it's it's hard to imagine how all this all these boxes are going to get built out. Uh, another concern that that U.S. Ignite touched on in a recent article was that local governments that said they're worried if they um, make it easier for companies to deploy new wireless equipment in profitable areas of town, there's still no guarantee that everyone in the community will get the benefits of advanced 5G networks. Uh, are Do you think carriers are doing enough to provision for you know, 5G in rural and low income regions, <laughs> or is it, it sounded like they didn't really want to talk about that. Well, it's an ongoing laugh. <laughs> carriers carriers would say for sure right uh one of the 
one of the arguments that I heard is that um, in theory, the nice thing about uh, 5G is that it will be used not just for people, but for things. So in theory, uh, it could be the scale, the number of cows you have, as opposed to the number of people, if you want to track things and and, and that being important. But I, I think that that argument is going to be difficult to put into practice because I think the, the 4G networks, you know, in in theory, again, one of the things 5G is good for is being able to connect lots and lots of different advice devices, but I'm not sure we've maxed out uh, what 4G can do on that front in terms of IoT use cases in rural areas. And if there's not that as the business case, it's hard to imagine that telcos are going to want to invest just to increase capacity um, when there may not be an immediate return on investment. So I do think the rural broadband conversation is, uh, is, is certainly not solved and is going to generate uh, much hand-wringing and regulatory discussion going forward. So you're saying that they first need to solve for the uh, ROI of uh, having connected cows? Yeah. <laughs> if, we all, if we only had connected cows, then for sure we would solve rural broadband. There we go. We just have them uh, roaming around with a small cell on them. And, That's right. And, that and we'll have a GIS. We'll have a GIS reservation system for the connected cloud. <laughs> I mean, I think we've solved it. So That's, yeah, I was about to say, we, what left? what's left to do now? We've already yeah, figured this on out. To the this next is, problem. Let's just, you know, whoever's listening, just take this to your boss and we're all set. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you can write my uh, consultant fee to Mari Sylvie Caro. Right. This is a... Uh, well, this is uh, uh, this is the, the discussions that you're having with the cities and with the stakeholders in smart cities and with the uh, carriers themselves. That's more representative of of what you're doing at US Ignite than than some of the harebrained ideas that we're coming up with here, right, Mari? <laughs> yeah, I I would say one of the things um, that is is great about what US Ignite does is we are definitely in the trenches talking to city leaders, particularly in CIO offices and and data offices, um, and learning a lot about what they're facing on the ground. Um, So a lot of the examples that I gave today came from, we conduct a number of workshops called our US Ignite Forum Program. And those bring in uh, a lot of city CIOs and digital officers and resiliency officers and sustainability officers and whatever city's gotten funded. Um, And the the (laughs) issues that really come up over and over again are connectivity and data, both of which are super important to telcos, I think. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for uh, uh, being on the podcast today, Uh, Kelsey. uh, Let's wrap it up. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mari. Uh, Everyone, you've been listening to the Light Reading Podcast, which is mixed and edited by our wonderful Tian Fu in New York. You can reach out to us uh, with questions or comments by emailing editors at lightreading.com. And please also follow us on Twitter at light underscore reading. Uh, For the articles and research we discussed in the show, check out lightreading.com and search podcasts. Our podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, maybe on the dark web. Yeah, you never know. Let us, let us know if you see it there. <laughs> or maybe not. You probably should not let don't us tell know us. about that. Just, don't just, tell us. We don't just want to listen in, in the comfort of your own home. Don't yes. tell us. <laughs> uh, so please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell all your coworkers, friends, connected cows. Um, fellow pizza challengers about our podcast 
So we'll be back with another episode real soon. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks everybody. Bye.